Hello, and welcome to the Chest Journal Podcast, where each month we host a discussion with the authors of important articles from the current issue of the journal, adding context and commentary to the challenges facing clinicians in the fields of pulmonary, critical care, and sleep medicine. To introduce today's topic, here's your host, Dr. Alice Gallaudet-Marais. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Chess Podcast. I am Alice Gallo, and I'm one of the hosts for the social media editorial uh, for the Chess Journal. Today, I have with me Dr. Brian Driver. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Driver. Would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? Yes, thank you, Dr. Gallo, and thank you for uh, having me. Um, I am an emergency physician and the director of clinical research at Hennepin County Medical Center in the emergency department. Uh, it's a busy urban hospital and a level one trauma center. Thank you so much for introducing yourself. I want to start by um, trying to share with our listeners the person behind the awesome paper that we're going to discuss today. So tell me about what is a perfect day at the ED at Hennepin County for you. Uh, you know, a perfect day is a busy day in the ED where patients are coming and going and there's a mix of critically ill patients and mildly ill patients and enthusiastic residents who I can kind of observe and mentor and teach through the shift. And you get a really a mix of all levels of acuity and um, some good procedural mix in there too. So I really like doing a little bit of everything. And that's, I think, as it makes academics fun. I love that. And sounds like you like busy too. I love busy. Um, tell me about, tell me about how the idea for your paper and for this, this study you did came to you. Were you intubating someone and then you're like, Ooh, would this person remember this? How did it come up? Yeah. You know, I think we've probably all had those cases where, you know, you're just not sure what someone will or won't remember, but this really came about because we, you know, in the emergency department, we do intubate a lot of people who have shock or who are at risk of shock. And sedatives tend to worsen shock states in general. It's not always true, but it's, you know, it's something you're maybe more careful with sedation. And, and someone who comes in and their peri-arrest, you know, we might withhold sedation or do it really lightly. And the, the classic teaching, at least at our shop and at other shops I've heard, is that patients who are really sick just don't remember things. You know, that it's okay to, to be lighter on sedation because they, patients who are really sick aren't going to form memories and the priority is preserving perfusion. And I think a lot of that is true, but there wasn't a lot of data to support like, well, what, who does remember and, and what do they remember? Can we go really light in sedation? Does that have adverse consequences for the patient? And it was really just this sort of uh, missing hole in our knowledge, at least for the emergency department. I know there's been a lot of study in the operating room, but in the emergency department where these more dynamic, critically ill patients, what do they remember and what do they not remember? Oh, I love that. So then, so then you went ahead and, and did some research and found a paper that said that 3% people remember. So tell me a little bit about the background for your study. Yeah. And this, this, um, so Dr. Fuller out of Washington University in St. Louis kind yeah. of in parallel was investigating a very similar question because before the past year or two, there really was just small case series or chart reviews. Um, there wasn't a lot of high quality data examining, you know, which patients remember what, what exactly do they remember. And Dr. Fuller 
um, in parallel and uh, published a few months before this, this article we're talking about today, that in his institution uh, in Washington University, St. Louis, um, 3% of patients seem to remember um, being awake but unable to move. And they use an adjudication process and, you know, high, high quality data collection. And of course, that's one center and that, that is important to know. But we at, at Hennepin obviously have a different center and a, a different patient population, different sedation practices. And so we were very interested to see. And, and we're actually already com- collecting data uh, at the same time this, that Dr. Fuller was, um, what our rate would be uh, at our institution. That's fascinating. Um, just just to to go back to something you just said, as I was reading your paper, I did I I did get myself thinking about um, your team's sedation practice. So before the study, tell me a little bit what the sedation practice was for for intubation. So for the procedure itself, we yeah. almost universally would use uh, automate. And either succinylcholine or rocuronium, which I guess are not, not sedatives, but that we would use those yeah. neuromuscular blocking agents and almost uniformly automate. Rarely would we use something like ketamine. Never would we use something like propofol or midazolam for the induction itself. Yeah. And then after intubation, I would say it was by far and away the most common was to either give uh, a propofol infusion with mm-hmm. or without a bolus. That was more variable. And, um, or to give nothing if someone, we, we thought that the sedation would be more harmful, harmful. to them than beneficial mm-hmm. to them. So there were some cases where a patient would be intubated and maybe they're peri-arrest, maybe they were very injured and they wouldn't get sedation. Rarely would we give something like midazolam or ketamine um, previously, although sometimes we would, but that wasn't the, the norm. Yeah, that's fascinating. I I personally, and that's my personal preference, I, I would say Atomidate is like my fourth choice. Uh, but again, I practice in the ICU, so I, I wanted to ask about that. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, tell tell us a little bit about the methods of your study, and if you can, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about your your data collect um, collection form. I thought the questions you chose and how you chose to word them um, on the appendix for your paper are fascinating. So, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about that too. Yeah, for sure. So we're we're lucky enough to have. Um, research volunteers present in our emergency department 24 hours a day. There are local undergraduate students who get trained and sort of get to watch the inner workings of our ED. And so they come into the resuscitation bays for any time there's going to be an intubation and they prospectively collect data on the intubation itself. You know, um, what were the vital signs? What were the drugs given? Um, Was the intubation attempt successful? And just some basic data. And then they give a form to the intubating physician afterwards that, that fills out, you know, what was this patient's level of alertness? Were there any complications or is there any markers of difficulty? And so this is really driven by these volunteers who are collecting these data and prompting the physician to, to record the data, which I think uh, allows us to get really high quality prospective data in a way that's harder if they're, you know, not someone around keeping you honest, like these, these nice yeah. volunteers we have. And then when the patient is intubated, they would enter these uh, into a list in our electronic health record. And then every single shift that would come in would monitor this list and see if someone was marked as having been intubated or sorry, extubated. Mm -hmm. 
and then they would go up um, every shift then to see if they were awake enough to to answer or to complete a short questionnaire. So they would go into the patient's ICU room or floor room if they they weren't able to connect in the ICU and um, ask them if it was okay to ask a few questions, and then really administered a version of this Bryce questionnaire. Now the Bryce questionnaire is a validated tool. It's been used in the operating room to assess the memories of patients from uh, general anesthesia in the operating room. Yeah. And it really is the, the gold standard for assessing memory in that setting. And so we modified it just a little bit to capture memories from, from what they remember even before the intubation did they remember the intubation itself? Do they remember a feeling of wakeful paralysis? And so these are kind of face-to-face interviews with the patient um, and recording on a paper form. Um, yes, no answers, and also a verbatim memory if someone says they uh, felt awake but paralyzed. And so I think it it it's uh, was a nice way to kind of get the patient's input in real time rather than you know after the fact, which has its strengths and weaknesses. But I think that was a nice strength of it. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, one thing, one thing I was curious because I've noticed you, you also uh, work with trainees. I've noticed that um, some of our trainees would be able to wake up someone who is heavily sedated. Um, so I'm wondering if you had some training for people how to get the rest kind of in a homogeneous way. Or no, um, or if your your undergrad volunteers had um, a pattern to recognize, how how did the rest part um, play out? Yeah, good question because this is sort of a crux of one of our findings. Is <laughs> the, the rest sort of is a big deal when you're thinking about risk of awareness? And yeah. what we did is there there was no formal training, but on the data collection form itself, it listed the exact definitions for each RAS level. So, you know, a RAS of zero is such and such and negative one minus two plus one plus two. So they would have it in real time. And the the patient, so in the ED, in the resuscitation bay, the person who's performing the intubation is the same person who's sort of caring for the patient in general. Oh, good. And so they they come in and, you know, you're, you're trying to get a history from the patient. You're trying to talk to them. You're trying to say, hey, Mr. So-and-so or, you know, tell me what's going on, or maybe they're totally unconscious and you're, you know, trying to see if they can wake up and you're taking care of them and you're, you know, resuscitating them and then performing the intubation. So you, you get a good sense of their mental status through just the, that dynamic patient care, but not in a formal way per se. Um, so based on the sum of their experience with the patient, they would then complete that RAS score, which I think is probably pretty accurate, but it, you're right. It's, we didn't do an inner observer agreement or any other method to to really make it robust but i think it's probably pretty darn close oh absolutely and um and before you go into the results you found uh after your statistical analysis and everything as you were looking at your data did you have did you have um kind of like a pre-results thought process what you thought you were going to find and and how were they similar or different than what you found you know, I really thought that, you know, we in the, when someone's being intubated in the emergency department, they're usually pretty darn sick from one reason or another yeah. or injured. And I think I really did ascribe to the theory that memory formation isn't as robust and that it would be pretty rare for someone to recall an episode of true wakeful paralysis 
except in, you know, horrible omissions of sedation in someone who otherwise was awake, maybe intubated for respiratory failure and their, their brain was totally normal. So I honestly thought that it was going to be an uncommon finding. And if when we did see it, it might be a spurious finding based on a, a dream the patient had. That was, that was my bias. That's fascinating. I, I honestly, before your study, I had the same bias as you. I'm like, there's no way this person coming in severely septic shock already obtended in the ICU will remember this, you know? So on that segue, tell us a little bit about your results and what you found and, um, and, um, your analysis. Yeah. So we, what we did with the data to kind of figure out who actually remembered or not, because, you know, there, we do this questionnaire, the patient reports yes or no, whether they remembered. And then we, presented the data from the patients to a three adjudicator panel. Uh, one was a pediatric emergency physician, one was a toxicologist, one was a pulmonologist and emergency physician, and gave them the patient narratives and their what their sedation regimen was and sort of asked them to judge, do you think this patient had awareness or not? You know, because sometimes patients are going to say they they were aware, but they they might've just said, oh, I was really tired or something, you know, some other thing. And, and it looks like they did get, get some good yeah. station. So there was some leeway for the adjudicators to say, oh, I don't think that patient truly had awareness of paralysis. So of the 886 patients who we were able to follow up, there were 80 who reported being aware of paralysis. And after adjudication in this panel, uh, 61 of the 80 were judged to have a possible memory. And five were judged to have a definite memory uh, of wakeful paralysis. Well, 14 of those 80 were judged to not have a memory of paralysis. So about, you know, if you add the 61 and the five, you get 66 uh, out of 886, which is about seven and a half percent of patients either possibly or definitely had wakeful paralysis, which of course was sort of shockingly high to, to me and uh, my partners. Yeah, I... It was shockingly high to me too. <laughs> and uh, and um, is is anything going to change in your personal practice with your results? Yes, absolutely. So these data were really helpful for our whole group. I mean, this this project is, is data from a continuous uh, airway quality improvement database. So we we monitor these things, and the primary goal is to improve local practice. And we obviously wanted to share that with the rest of the world. And so when we saw these data we basically constructed a more standardized sedation protocol or guideline for our department to one, let everyone know that patients do remember that patients, uh, <laughs> you know, it's not this impossible unicorn that yeah. we think it is. It, it, it does happen. And we have to, to know that, and we have to be diligent about providing sedation. Now we obviously don't want to do more harm than good with sedation. So everything has to be balanced, but we basically said, okay, if someone has good blood pressure, everyone should get a robust propofol infusion, um, plus or minus some fentanyl. And if you're more worried about uh, blood pressure, then use something else like ketamine or midazolam and, and just try to make sure that everybody's getting something unless you have a really, really good reason to withhold sedation. Because obviously, we, we want the bedside physician to still be able to use uh, his or her judgment, but we wanted to give them a framework from which to work in. And um, also, like, like I said before, just for them to know that this happens and we can't be too laissez-faire about it. Of course. And um, 
you you mentioned something in your in your um in the discussion of your paper um even though we do strive to completely avoid recall of awareness of paralysis do you think we can achieve like zero recall and do you think it would be safe to do so yeah and this this is a point that i think certainly is up for debate um but if your sole goal was to abolish all memory formation and you did that at all costs, I think you might do more harm than good at yeah. the ends of the spectrum of critical illness. You know, I think we all want the patient experience to be really good when they come into the hospital. Um, but if someone has a blood pressure of 60 over 30, you know, you might uh, be really light on the sedation or withhold it and, and maybe think about memory formation secondary to, uh, you know, critical organ perfusion I think you obviously want both, but I think if you had to pick one, you'd go for neurologically intact, good outcome rather than uh, memory-free outcome. Yeah. And yeah. there's this is one of those things that's unknowable and maybe a future area for study, but it's I, I think that might be true that you, you don't want to make it your sole goal. Yeah, I agree. And um, so speaking of future, so tell me, tell me what's next for your for your study group. Well, I think. We, you know, as much as we provide post-innovation sedation, it's actually an area where we don't know much, uh, interestingly. I mean, obviously, we all do it every day. We see other people do it every day. We anecdotally, uh, things sort of work out as far as we can tell. But we don't really know, like, is there a, a one drug that's better than, than another? Is there uh, a sedation sort of depth that's best yeah. you know there's some work out there sedating or suggesting that a lighter sedation depth is better yeah than a longer term but that's mostly for icu patients what happens in the ed i think there's a little bit of data but it's not robust especially because you you really have to consider how deeply sedated the patient was when you intubated them you know that sort of is going to uh, make it more difficult to have a sedation depth goal so i think comparing different drugs different drug regimens different depths of sedation in the ED is really what's next to see if we can um, move the needle on this one. And I think especially, this is especially crucial in patients with hypotension. I think patients with normal tension, I think it's, it's pretty straightforward. So I think it's really in patients with hypotension that, that are, uh, there's some more questions to answer. Fascinating. Fascinating. Um, Dr. Driver, thank you so, so much for joining us today. I, I learned so much from you and I had a blast. I can't believe we're neighbors, but, <laughs> um, but fantastic work. Thank you so much for, for, um, spending this 20 minutes with me. And thank you so much for donating your time to the journal chess readers and the chess community. Uh, fantastic work. Thank you so much. Thanks, Dr. Gala, for having me. It's a pleasure. It's all mine. <laughs>